Hello and welcome to episode 142 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian and I am joined here by James Rundle. Hello. I'm, I'm happy you're here because, you know, James went in for immigration stuff on Wednesday. <laughs> I came Didn't out. Didn't see him on Thursday, <laughs> so wondering if uh, I was just going to be doing this alone uh, this week. So it was, it's good uh, to have you here. Yeah, it was a... Uh... It was a struggle, but I made it. So, <laughs> let's not say too much. They'll probably track this stuff. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So this week, we have a guest for you, uh, Scott Mullins, who is the head of financial services business development for Amazon Web Services. He comes in. Uh, we had a pretty good conversation about, uh, you know, obviously about cloud and the capital markets, cloud adoption, stuff like that. But we also talked about why, you know, some previous um, projects around NICE technology and NASDAQ for specific capital market cloud didn't quite work out and he was on that nasdaq team um that that was building that uh back in the day um we also look at you know whether or not a company like aws and for that matter uh azure microsoft azure google as they become more and more important as more and more companies use them uh whether or not they should be labeled systemically important financial market utilities, similar to um, a clearinghouse, something like that. So we get into that a little bit, and just you know whether or not there's is there an end state for capacity and costs? Like what's the what's the kind of the future evolution of what cloud is going to be? Because at some point, endless capacity costs will be very very low, as we're already kind of getting there in, in some ways already. So what's kind of that next evolution for cloud providers such as AWS? We tried to expand it to the broader community. You know, obviously, though, we're coming at it with a little bit of a Amazon uh, bias. But Sounds like an interesting conversation. Hopefully, hopefully. And James wasn't on that one, so it was just me. So it probably sucked, and, uh, you know, but we'll go with it anyway. I don't want to tell you what was happening to me at that point. That was, uh... <laughs> um, so two news stories that we wanted to hit on before we get to that. Um, first off... We uh, spoke with Orbital Insight. Uh, they, they're the satellite analytics platform provider, uh, big in the satellite data um, and geospatial analytics space. One of the more interesting alternative data providers. You know, it's funny, like, so these guys are at BST, right? And yeah. I hadn't really heard of them before. I thought I hadn't. Um, and then afterwards, I started hearing the name everywhere and every yeah. conversation I have with people. And then I realized that for... Probably the best part of two years now, I've just assumed people have been talking about orbital insights as in the insights you gleam from satellites rather than actually like a proper noun. Kind of yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, oops. Yeah, so they're definitely one of the ones that get talked about a lot. And so at the, at that event at BySide Technology North America, um, they talked about how they're going to be eventually rolling out a platform as a service pass uh, model mm-hmm. in the coming year. And they wouldn't talk anything more than to say this is, you know, Ben Rudin said, you know, this is the future of orbital insight, but they wouldn't get any specifics. Uh, you win an award, you climb up. This is how it yeah, is, exactly. guys. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, really open in front of the audience when it comes to a journalist. Yeah, Jeez. then everybody just tightens up. Um, so we talked with, uh, I spoke with uh, Octavio uh, Morenzi over at Op- Opamas. I always get the name wrong, sorry. Um, he was on the podcast like two weeks ago. I know, I know. And I, it's, <laughs> it's sad. Um he compared what, or so he was not briefed on Orbital Insights platform as a service model. He was uh, recently briefed on SpaceNo, one of Orbital Insights competitors, and they have a very similar um, premise where 
a user can go uh, select any location on the planet, define uh, polygons to circumscribe the area to be analyzed, and then extract information over time, such as number of cars, aircraft, buildings, etc., in a defined area. But basically, go in, do it yourself. Um, analytics in some ways and that was one thing that uh, Ben said that you know essentially the end game is for you to have the, the user work with the uh, with the orbital insight platform to circle anywhere you want in the world or that's already in orbital insights area of interest database and you can run your time series yourself to track cars planes shipping containers etc this is going to be like an average, right? I mean, unless they've got satellites in like literally geosynchronous orbit above everywhere you want to look at, I assume they just pass over once every 24 hours or something. It must be. Well, I think that the, one thing to keep on talking about is just that, that there are so many satellites up there now, mm-hmm. and there's so much data coming in that you can actually do it on, as I understand. Now, again, we're going to learn more about this as they kind of release the product. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, but I think that that you're able to do this a little bit more, not real-time, obviously, but that you're able to update this more should you be interested yeah. in that. So it's not like the old days where you have one dedicated satellite that would do a full sweep, and then you've got ones you can piggyback off that pass over the same spot. Well, what he, he said, um, so we were just kind of talking about their products in general, and you know, he said, the number of images that we're getting of Earth is increasing exponentially. Five years ago, you were getting images every once in a while. Today, you're getting imagery of the entire Earth's landmass daily. So yeah, I guess it is a daily kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's just how this is kind of changing in the geospatial uh, or um, kind of satellite geospatial telemetry mm-hmm. um, space. The other interesting thing, and there's going to be a, we're going to have a feature coming out on this probably next week. Um, I'm not sure when we're going to be actually publishing it online, but yep. uh, it'll be in definitely in the November issue of Waters. Depends um, when uh, the lazy reporter files it, really. Yeah, I, suppose yeah, that's I guess. Yeah, I've just been chasing so much. Yeah, I feel like a dog going after, I don't know, cars? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually got a satellite that can track yeah. that. Uh, so Octavio said that this could potentially move them closer to um, intermediary kind of platform, alternative data platform providers like a Quandle, 1010 Data, 7 Park Data, you know, just th- those are some of the examples he gave um, that uh, Octavio gave. Um, but he also said that it will require the company to provide a much broader range of data sets, not solely on satellite imagery. So that could, I asked um, Ben if that meant like IoT, you know, if we're going to be in the telemetry space, IoT devices, Internet of Things, maybe that's another area. You know, this is highly speculative. So he said, listen, you know, I, I can't talk about the future. He's like, we are aware that there are these devices called Internet of Things, so, but he yeah. wouldn't get any more into it. So who knows what that's going to mean for the future of them. Interesting read. Give it a read, hopefully. Um, it's exclusive to us. So go there we go. Nice. The other uh, interesting proper news story. Um, James spoke with the folks at Trading Technologies, and apparently next year they're going to be launching an order management system. Yeah, more of an OEMS, I guess, really. Um, So, uh, as I usually say, to give a bit of background to this, so TT has been kind of rebuilding its technology over the last couple of years. Um, You might remember back in, I think, March or February, it was at Boca, um, I sat down with Rick Lane, the CEO, and he sort of talked about the new direction he wants to go with trading technology. So moving away from just being a screen-based click company, mm-hmm. you know, click to trade and, and all the rest of it, um, they want to focus on three main areas, so infrastructure and trading and everything else. Um, 
so this is kind of an interesting release from them. It it's not necessarily new as such. Like there are some new technological bits and pieces in it, but mm-hmm. mostly it's kind of bringing together all the existing workflows they've had in sort of in the TT platforms, so like XTrader and everything yeah. else um, throughout the years, and they're just bringing it all into one screen. I mean, yeah. he says like you know if you're an FCM or a broker trading the futures of fixed income markets, then you know, by dint of your job, you've had to have multiple screens like, to handle your orders, handle your executions, handle your connectivity and your order routing and everything else. Um, what they're doing now, and it's quite, it has been done, obviously, in the space before, maybe not by such a big player, is bring it all into one place um, yeah. for sell-side FCMs. And he said, actually, interestingly, um, this is far from the future, but he might want to expand out to other asset classes, the buy side, and things like that as well. Yeah. Um, but this really incorporates everything that TT has been doing over the last few years, um, both in terms of its execution technology. Also, it incorporates uh, TT Score, which is the um, behavioral science AI platform uh, that they acquired when they bought Neurensic, mm-hmm. um, which gives you sort of you know surveillance capability as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's uh, I think it's really. So when I spoke to Rick, he said um, this is really the first kind of expression of of the next 25 years of trade technologies, really. Yeah. So what they want to do in terms of, they've built this new technology platform, now it's done, they finally have the tech in place for the foundation, and they can go ahead and do things like this now. They can build an OMS, they can build an EMS. Yeah. They can move into other areas, and other asset classes away from, I guess their kind of traditional heartland's been in futures execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and this gives them a much broader view. It allows them to take in um, all kinds of order information, regardless of whether it originated in TT's pipes or not and then funnel it through that system, and it gives them a much bigger view of the market. And they have all of the big futures commission merchants, all of the big brokers are using TT. So it could be quite interesting, quite powerful. Yeah, I think it, and the reason why I think this bleeds nicely into the conversation we're going to have here in a minute with uh, Scott Mullins is that you know this move from XTrader, which was very popular mm. you know, for decades, hard install, bulky, you know, yeah. at what, what, what trading technology small T's on those as opposed to the company, but just overall trading technology was always hard install, you know, big bulky, uh, you know, hefty monolith platform. So you tried Chicago technology, right? Exactly. So they were one of the first, you know, firms to really embrace it and and to really pull the cord, you know, um, and just say, you know what, we're going to move to TT, this SaaS-based offering, software-service-based offering, uh, through the cloud, and that's going to be the future. And the the cool thing I think about this announcement um, is it, it shows some of the benefits. You you get to see some of the real world benefits of that move away from uh, the hard install of the yeah. X Trader platform. Um, yeah. yeah. So for me, that's what was most interesting there. Well, and you know, it gives people the they've been sort of pushing hard in like crypto markets recently, for instance. Yeah. So they've been experimenting with new asset classes and everything else. And I think that's just Gives them the ability to experiment and something to turn it off and to turn it on if they want to for their clients as well. And, like, you know, Rick Lane, someone from TT was telling us the other week that, uh, you know, he's a technologist, like he's a coder, that's what he likes yeah. doing. Um, so it's kind of no surprise, I guess. He used really. to have the best headshot in all of. Uh, he used to have the best headshot in the industry, in apart the from industry. maybe Bill Stones. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, if you don't know what it is, go to waterstechnology.com, look up a story involving Bill Stone, and uh, You'll see. yeah, just a clean pair of underpants nearby. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, this guy's telling us that Rick is essentially a coder at heart, so it's no surprise he's moving to this new kind of like as a service model. Everyone accepts now that it's going to 
change the industry. I think disrupt is probably the wrong word to use now because everyone's going to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, you know. saw with what was it, market serve going with trade serve? You know, saying yeah. we're we're done with these monoliths of um, of all these different kind of platforms that we have. We're going to trade serve, and we're just going to put this all. You know, this will all go as a service model, yeah. um, and that will be the future of this organization. You see it with Eagle, and you see it with everyone else as well. Yeah. They're all doing it. Um, there's only a few kind of holdouts on the hard installs left, I think, really, um, and they tend to be the, the major, major players. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's an interesting move for TT. Um, well, we'll and we might have some more information on that. Uh, you know, potentially. Uh, yeah, if we can get it together, um, we've got, hopefully we've got these guys on the podcast soon. Yeah, so, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Um, potentially. Uh, sooner than later, actually. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that's uh, we'll link to those articles. Give them a read yourselves. And so next up, don't want to take up too much of Scott's time here. Well, he already did the interview yesterday, or two days ago, so <laughs> not really taking up his time. But um, so yeah. Next up, though, we have a 25-minute conversation with Scott Mullins uh, again, uh, worldwide financial services business development lead at Amazon Web Services. Going to talk about cloud in the capital market space. And James and I will see you here next week. See you. Okay. And so now I'm joined by Scott Mullins, uh, head of business development for Amazon Web Services. Scott, thanks for being here today. Anthony, thanks for having us. No problem. Uh, so obviously, we're going to be talking about cloud development in the capital market space. And, you know, an anecdote I like to talk about is so I started at Waters about nine years ago. And in that time, when I first went to conferences, the idea of using a company like Amazon, uh, especially for the buy side, it was anathema. It was like, no, no, we're not going to put our data into those kind of clouds um, or maybe just a very small amount. Now, today, everybody um, is using some form of, of a public cloud provider. A lot of them are coupling up. And you guys obviously are the in the capital market space, uh, the the dominant um, member right now, along with Microsoft. So I guess, in your perspective, what's changed over the years that it's, that uh, capital markets firms feel more comfortable with putting their data into a cloud? Uh, I think it's knowledge. I think it's simply um, knowing what the what the tools are and and how to use them. I think you know most organizations. Um, are made up of people, obviously, uh, and people tend to be averse to change. You, sure. you kind of know what you do. You kind of know what makes your business run. You're used to those patterns. You're used to those habits. You're used to those tools, um, and and changing from away from that can be hard, especially when you look at a typical financial institution. Sixty to sixty-five percent of your budget's going to be business as usual, and only about thirty to thirty-five percent is probably going to be going to some kind of a, a innovation budget or, or change management program. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that little time and that little money. To, to actually devote to change, it can be slow at times. Mm-hmm. I actually think what we've done over the last six years since I've been working in cloud, so I, I started working in cloud at NASDAQ in 2012, yeah. um, I think we've seen monumental changes and a massive transformation in the industry, as you pointed out. Um, but I think really it's all been about coming up to speed on what the technologies are how they are much um, more suited for building rapidly and with agility uh, and being able to actually leverage them uh, in a way that actually helps you um, continue to be secure, safe, and resilient. Well, I think that's a key piece is how is that comfort around the security changed? Um, you know, that it, in the conversations I always had in the past, that was, they were like, oh, we're too worried about a hack. You know, that would be just catastrophic for organization. How have you gotten past that uh, hurdle? 
uh, conversations. Uh, you know, again, we go back to people. Um, in, in, in most instances, the people that work with technologies are not the people that manage risk. Yeah. Uh, the people that work with technologies are typically your development teams, your infrastructure teams. Uh, you have a whole another layer or two or three of people that ultimately have responsible for managing the risk of the firm and for setting proper governance in place. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that we've done over the last several years is to uh, invest in relationships with those folks to help them understand at the same time as their technology counterparts what the tools are, how they work, and actually how they impact their roles in risk management and information security and compliance so that the necessary changes and evolutions in governance frameworks can actually be made at the same time that the technology changes are being made because otherwise you're gated. If you're a developer and you want to use a database as a service or a data warehouse as a service or a machine learning or an AI tool that we offer, you're going to have to get approval to do so from your risk management team. Mm-hmm. And so if we bring the risk management teams and the security and the compliance teams along at the same time, and everybody's on the same page from the standpoint of being a cross-functional team within the, the financial institution, then they can move forward very quickly together. Otherwise, you're just kind of throwing it over the fence in that classic waterfall-style sure. uh, development uh, fashion only in this case, you're, you're doing it in relation to your tooling. Sure. And, you know, one thing that we've seen in the industry is, you know, the costs around storage are coming down, down, down. Capacity is increasing um, exponentially, really, over the last few years. Is there, does there come a point where there is kind of this capacity endgame where, you know, cost and price are almost commercial, uh, you know, uh, just it, it's all kind of fairly even across the sector, and now it's more of uh, ancillary services that you add on um, on top of that? Or is cost still going to be the main driver? And is the capacity need still the main driver right now today? You know, I think many people, when they think about cloud, their mind immediately goes to cost mm-hmm. and cost savings. Um, it, it's natural. You yeah. think, hey, it's scalable. It's not always on. I don't have to outlay capital expenditure to actually have a, a large amount of capacity from a compute or storage perspective. But I'll tell you, Anthony, cost is actually probably second or maybe even third on the list of things that our customers are looking for in relation to benefits of cloud. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's widely known that you're you're most likely going to save money when you move to the cloud. And there's 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 some good metrics out there about customers that have done that. Finra comes to mind in capital markets. Steve Ranich, their CIO, has, has, has sure. publicly stated they saved uh, about 40% on their overall cost of their infrastructure when they moved to AWS from what, what they were doing before. But really it's about the business value and the agility. So I think we've moved past people thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna save money on compute power and storage, they understand that. But really it's about the ability to actually have agility in your business. I can now um, not have to set up my own data warehouses, I get a data warehouse as a service from mm-hmm. AWS, much like NASDAQ does. Yeah, uh, They moved to our Redshift data warehouse platform several years ago to back up all the trades on their exchanges. So every night they're putting about uh, 14 billion rows of data into our data warehouse as a service. They're not having to worry about just storage or compute power, it's a, it's a fully managed database or data warehouse offering for them. And you can, you can continue to, to look across the services they out, that we offer from the standpoint of machine learning or artificial intelligence or the different database types. And you can begin to see really the ability to be agile with those components as you build applications. So it kind of moves beyond just cost to the ability to have flexibility and agility in what you're building with. You know, it, it, as I remember, you know, you had uh, companies like NYSE Technologies and NASDAQ uh, that were trying to build capital market specific clouds. 
And obviously that those kind of those projects either just kind of fell to the wayside or whatever, you know, kind of happened there. Why, what, what kind of happened? Why is it that the likes of AWS, Microsoft, Google, IBM, why are, why are they kind of the last men standing uh, in this marketplace right now? Why do you think that, that is that, that the capital markets wasn't, weren't able to kind of create a solution in and of itself? I think the answer to that, and having been on on the Nasdaq team that was mm-hmm. that was building FinCloud at the time, I think the answer to that is because it, it wasn't necessary to have a capital market specific cloud or a banking specific cloud uh, or an insurance specific cloud. The value of the cloud is in the infrastructure itself and the tools and the services. Um, there's not necessarily anything specific to capital markets or banking that that is is necessary to add on top of that. Mm-hmm. I think, and if you went back to 2012 when you had NICE, who was building um, kind of their own community cloud, if you will, uh, over in Mawa in, in the data center there, and then Nasdaq, what we were doing, we were trying to make sure that customers understood the value of of working in this way, mm-hmm. uh, and also where they would have the ability to actually um, get get that benefit. Yeah. We felt at, at NASDAQ that we could do that um, with our brand uh, and by applying what we felt at the time was an extra layer of governance and security on top. Mm-hmm. If you fast forward, um, even just a year after we started working with, with Amazon on that, very quickly Amazon already had the capabilities to sure. offer that out to their customers because they could iterate and innovate so quickly in relation to the services that they were building. That that continues at scale today, and so if you look at, at somebody like like a Nasdaq or a NICE or anybody else um, who's trying to build something that's specific uh, to the industry, um, they have a day job. Yeah. Uh, Nasdaq runs an exchange. New York Stock Exchange runs an exchange. They're not in the infrastructure business from the standpoint of building um, specific enterprise grade infrastructure that scales for many, many, many different types of customers. That's what we're in the business of doing. And so what we found is that we were able to focus on the things that we do well at AWS, which is to build the infrastructure and operate it um, on a, at a global scale and to innovate very quickly in relation to that. Just last year, we added over 1,400 new features or functionality enhancements to our platform that continues to scale uh, incrementally year over year as we continue to improve our services. And that lets uh, organizations like NASDAQ focus on building and delivering value specifically on the cloud for their customers and not have to worry about building out infrastructure. Okay. What are, as you've gone about this process, and let's talk about challenges today, where do firms tend to, in the projects that you've seen that didn't quite live up to what they were hoping for or that just it took a lot longer than maybe they were hoping for, where do firms often get tripped up? Where, if you were kind of going to talk about uh, best case and you know, kind of best practices, where do you kind of see projects becoming, you know, kind of just meandering and just not getting to the point that they were hoping initially that they would get to? That's, that's a good question. I think um, the one thing that I see that um, is a challenge for organizations is um, understanding that you don't have to approach projects the same way you have in the past. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is typically if I had a project previously when I was a product manager, uh, I built my business case. Uh, I'd take the business case for approval. Um, I would have an estimate on the uh, the cost of the infrastructure, uh, the software, the developer's time, all the different things that would go into building that particular product. I'd have to get business approval, and then I would go out uh, to my infrastructure team and say, I need the hardware. Can you procure that for me? Sure. We'll get your dev environment set up within six months. We'll get your UAT environment set up as well. Then finally, we'll get your prod. Um, and maybe you'll be able to launch your product in a year and a half. Sure. If you use that same methodology in in trying to run a project on the cloud, you're actually doing yourself a disservice because 
when you when you build a project on the cloud, you don't need a lot of capital outlay. You can spin up infrastructure very quickly in the in in the course of really minutes, frankly, instead of months, um, and test out your theory. You can mm -hmm. test out your project um, and the idea you have for a product very quickly. If it works. Fantastic. Then you begin to scale that project or, or, or that particular product. If it doesn't work, you shut it down really quickly. And you've only had operating expense that goes along with that. And then you can learn really quickly from the mistakes you've made or, the, or make some design changes and then iterate very quickly so that your, your cost of actually running that project and actually iterating on that project are much lower than it would be if you're going to go out and lay out some large capital expense to actually do a large project. So the first, the first thing I would say is, if you know, best practices is don't bring your, your classic methodology for, for, for project management to the cloud. Yeah. Understand that you can do things differently. You can be more agile and also be more frugal at the same time uh, when you're working with the cloud. The other thing I would say is, and I'll, uh, it harkens back to what we were mm -hmm. talking about earlier, which is bring all of your stakeholders along at the same time. If you're a developer um, or you're a business owner and you want to use the cloud uh, to actually build a new product or a service, or you want to transform uh, a legacy application uh, and modernize it, make it more resilient, more cost-effective. Um, unless you're a startup, you're probably going to have a number of different stakeholders across the business that you need to bring along at the same time. You've got to bring the security team along, you've got to bring the compliance team, you've got to bring all your other risk management folks along on the journey at the same time. Otherwise, that could slow you down significantly. We've seen instances where customers um, have been very enthusiastic from the business end, you've had very enthusiastic developers, who are, are also ready to build and, and, and they're ready to go, uh, but they aren't able to do so because they haven't gotten the right sign-offs, they haven't gotten the right understanding, and everybody's not on the same page from the standpoint of how we're gonna manage uh, and mitigate our compliance obligations, making sure we're safe and secure. So second tip would be make sure everybody's on board at the same time, that you've got a, you've yeah. got a, a plan implemented across the organization for how you're gonna use these tools. And then, you know, so maybe provide then some use cases. You, you've talked a little bit about uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, which are obviously techniques that more and more banks and asset managers are trying to get a hold of and incorporate into front, middle, and back office. It would seem to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that the back and middle office are the brunt of where you guys, I would imagine, are seeing the use cases um, the front office, it, as I understand, again, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, um, is, is still being kind of driven in, internally, um, that they're not releasing a lot of that uh, kind of proprietary trading and risk um, capabilities uh, to the public cloud sector. Maybe, it, it, would you agree with that kind of assessment as, of where the market is? And then maybe some use cases as to what you've seen, just hypothetically speaking. No, I would say um, across capital markets, from the front office to the back office, you're seeing people leverage the benefits of cloud. Uh, I think if you think capital markets, you can't help but think about data. You can't help mm -hmm. but think about analytics. Those are workloads that are purpose-built for cloud. Uh, being able to take massive amounts of data uh, and apply massive amounts of computing power to analyze that and derive value, either because we have to keep that data from a standpoint of regulatory compliance and we mm -hmm. have to analyze that data uh, in relation to, say, trade surveillance or fraud detection or anti-money laundering. Um, those are perfectly built um, use cases for the cloud, and many of our customers are doing that. Uh, you can look at FINRA, as I mentioned, who's um, running all the surveillance for the U.S. Uh, equities markets on AWS. Sure. They've got a massive data lake that they've built on our simple storage service, or S3 as we call it. And then on top of that, they run the analytics routines uh, to do surveillance on a daily basis. They put about 
35 billion rows of data in normal market volatility onto AWS on a nightly basis into that data lake, and that can spike upwards into 85 billion or even even higher um, in, in high volatility markets. Um, so data analytics is, is a huge use case. Stress testing, uh, another big use case for us uh, in financial services. You can look at CCAR uh-huh. um, and all the stress testing um, requirements that came out from the Fed uh, over the last several years. Um, that was a purpose-built use case for the cloud from a scalability perspective. We actually had a customer, AIG, um, who actually decommissioned their own internal grid that they maintained in their own data centers and moved it entirely to AWS because of the value that they, they, they received from us in doing so. It was more cost-effective. Um, it was actually um, able to help them do those calculations in much less time than it took for them to try to do it in their own data centers. And actually, the results they got out of that were, were much more granular and fine-tuned. Okay. Let me ask you this. So obviously you have, do you have a fine, do you have a number of how many financial markets, in, uh, financial uh, institutions that you have uh, under the AWS uh, banner? We don't talk about specific numbers about mm-hmm. the number of customers that we work with, but we're working uh, across the board, uh, across the world with financial institutions from the smallest fintech startups all the way to the largest exchanges, broker dealers, banks and insurance companies around the world. So let me ask you this then. Do, is, has there been any talk, because obviously here in the U.S., we're in a little bit of, if not deregulation, but you know maybe a stagnant regulation after 2008 you know, and the ramp up that we saw there. Europe is still very heavily, uh, they're still building out their uh, regulations. Do you envision a day where it's going to come where similar to, was it financially uh, important uh, financial market utilities like the clearing houses and stuff like that, where... There will be a similar regulatory uh, push uh, for a company like AWS, Microsoft, these public cloud providers that provide the backbone of much of a company's data infrastructure. Because if you guys go down, obviously, uh, it creates a, a market ripple effect. Do you, is there any kind of talk around that? Is, is there any kind of concern on that on your end, or is that something you'd welcome? You know, uh, the answer is I don't know. Yeah. I don't think any of us know what's going to happen in the future in relation to um, the way regulation uh, will, will shape out uh, around the world. Um, I don't think so, though, at, at this point in time. Um, the example I would draw is, is Equinix. Yeah. Is, is Equinix regulated today? The answer to that is obviously no. Um, they're not considered to be a bank servicing company. They're not considered to be any, any, anything special and related in relation to what, what they do for the financial services industry. We're very similar in, in many regards to an Equinix. Yeah. We provide uh, hosting ca- uh, capacity um, for financial institutions. Uh, in the future, I, I, don't, I don't know that um, that will change. I think from the standpoint of, of most regulatory regimes that, that we're talking about today, um, in the U.S., we're talking about principles-based rule systems. Mm-hmm. Um, in other parts of the world, you have more prescriptive-based rule systems, and you mentioned in Europe has some yeah. of that as well. So I think um, you're seeing regulatory agencies around the world beginning to see the ripple effect of, of, of financial institutions adopting cloud. They're seeing the benefits of that. They're seeing enhanced security uh, postures. They're seeing the ability to be more resilient. Uh, they're seeing the ability to be um, more responsive to market changes. Uh, we're beginning to see updates to rule books and handbooks and, and best practices and guidance. I don't think we're there yet in relation to specific regulation uh, about cloud. I think I think well, hopefully, what we'll see is that uh, regulation continues uh, to follow transformation and innovation as opposed yeah. to trying to lead it. And has anything like a GDPR? Do you have to? Does each jurisdiction that that AWS operates in? Do you have to kind of create? Um, 
I guess, different, uh, what is allowed to be stored, what isn't allowed to be stored. So, like, let's say, I don't know, Switzerland, maybe they have certain kind of uh, rules versus what the U.S. is required to do. Has that changed at all, or is that still, it, it's still jurisdiction to jurisdiction? Well, you asked about GDPR, so our yeah. services that we offer our customers are GDPR compliant. So if you use AWS, um, you, you, have, you have that assurance. Uh, from the standpoint of, of uh, maybe data locality is what you're talking about, yeah. where, where different jurisdictions or different countries require data to be uh, in-country. Sure. Um, where that is a requirement, that's obviously up to the customer um, to determine if they can actually use uh, our services. Gotcha. Um, in most countries uh, where there's a data locality requirement, we have infrastructure anyway. So um, it's kind of a moot point because if, if you need to, to be able to store data in a specific country, um, then we, we have the ability to do that for you. Okay. And then to go back to AI, ML, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, how are you guys trying to build out your offering to help firms to be able to incorporate some of these solutions into their investment processes or their risk management processes or back office? Can you give me some examples as to how you have grown out uh, your offering to address those uh, new tools? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really one of the most popular areas um, that we talk about with customers, specifically in capital markets. Um, one of the things we like to say is that we're democratizing data science. Mm -hmm. um, you know, prior prior to really the advent of cloud, we had machine learning, we had AI. Those are not new terms. Um, they were actually leveraged in financial services, specifically in capital markets on the machine learning side, quite well. Um, but it took an investment. It took a serious investment from organizations, um, both from the standpoint of capital, uh, being able to, to have the infrastructure to support it, but also having a team of data scientists to actually be able to do machine learning. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have new services like um, Amazon SageMaker, you don't need to, to be a data scientist. You don't have to have a team of data scientists to actually make use of machine learning tools. So we're trying to make sure that we democratize AI and machine learning for everyone to make it useful. Mm -hmm. From the standpoint of what we're seeing in the space, a, a lot of our capital markets customers specifically are using machine learning to kind of lift up our traditional data analytics. If you look at trade surveillance, you look at anti-money laundering, you look at fraud detection, most of the things that we've done there traditionally in the industry um, are, are rules-based, uh, kind of algorithmic exception reporting. Yeah. You run an algorithm, you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set my rules specifically to look for, say, spoofing uh, or for marking the close or marking the open, and, and these are the parameters I'm setting for the rules. I'm going to run the data through the rule set and see what exceptions uh, get spit out. Okay. And then I'm going to have a human being who's going to run through all those things, and they're going to say, that's a false positive, that's a false positive. That might be interesting to look at from the standpoint of investigation, and then we have a different workflow for that. We're seeing many organizations beginning to turn to machine learning to move away from exception-based uh, reporting to more looking for anomalies. Yeah. Being able to actually work very quickly through data sets and not have to follow just basic rule patterns, but being able to have um, a learning scenario where the, the actual uh, surveillance itself continues to learn and understand, hey, these are the changes that we're seeing and to adjust the surveillance over time. Okay. From an AI perspective, um, you're really seeing a lot of organizations turn to our Amazon uh, call center as a service tool called Amazon Connect. Uh, and so this is the, the actual call center as a service that Amazon.com built for itself when it found that in the, in the market there wasn't uh, a call center that met its needs. Mm -hmm. See, many of our customers uh, find value in that. This is a chatbot service? Uh, no, it's actually a call center. So much okay. like if you, if, you, if you picked up and called the airline or you called uh, your bank, 
normally it's not going to be answered by a human being anymore in the beginning. It's going to be answered by by something that's an electronic or a digital agent. Mm-hmm. The beautiful thing about Amazon Connect is that you have the ability to take our other AI services and plug them into Connect to make really compelling interactions for customers. So in the instance of a, of a chatbot or a digital agent, you could have that chatbot start the conversation with a customer. Let's say I'm a, I'm, I'm a bank customer and I'm calling in. And I'm, I'm saying, look, uh, I'm very upset. I believe there's fraud in my account. There's $5,000 missing from my account. Um, by building a chatbot using our services, you can take uh, things like Amazon Lex and Amazon Poly, build that chatbot where it's interacting with the customer. And at some point in time, I might become agitated because there's $5,000 missing from my account, Anthony. I'm really upset about this. I really want to talk to a human being. Yeah. If you're using a service called Amazon Comprehend, Comprehend can actually sense the sentiment of the conversation through the through the chat with the customer and understand that it's hey, it's time to hand that conversation off to a live agent. And through Amazon Connect, actually make that connection to a live agent. At the same time, if you're using a service uh, attached to that called Amazon Transcribe, the service can actually take a transcript of the complete conversation that I was having with the digital agent hand that to the live person and so suddenly that's a seamless handoff between the chatbot and the live agent and the live agent knows exactly what my frustrations are they know that i'm concerned about the fact that five thousand dollars is missing from my account i think there's fraud um, and hopefully move very quickly to assuage my fears and answer my questions because we've all had those situations from the standpoint of a customer service call where we're, we're a little bit upset we might be agitated and we have to repeat ourselves multiple times where we have to identify ourselves yeah. uh, through two-factor authentific- uh, authentication. So it's, it's really making a much smoother uh, customer experience through the use of our AI tools. So the key is, you know, back in the day you used to jam on the zero until you finally That's got an exactly operator. Right. So Agent. now, now today you just get really just raise your voice. Don't be calm and cool and collective because that's not going to get you to the human that you're going to want eventually. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So the other thing I would maybe just like – to, to kind of wrap things up, looking to the future, um, one of the things that, that hypothetically could be really revolutionary in our space is that of quantum computing. Is there any way that, is this something that, that you, that others in the space are starting to think about now and how you'll kind of serve as kind of like this base layer for how quantum computing will be used in the future? Or is that still way too off down the road right now? It's not something that I'm asked about by customers. Yeah. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, I'm working across our customers in banking and capital markets, insurance and payments. It's not something that's coming up with our customers. I think it's something that they're thinking about. It's something that's interesting to read about, but it's not something that I'm seeing customers actively pursue from a project perspective. Sure. So then what is what are some of those interesting things that's down the road? They're not here yet, but they're things that you're working on and that you think will be potentially revolutionary for what uh, clients can do in the future. Well, uh, I think data and analytics, while that's kind of bread and butter for financial services, are going to continue to be at, at the heart and the core of what we do. I think you've got, um, obviously, a change in regulatory reporting coming up here in the U.S. with the implementation of CAT. Mm-hmm. That's going to drive a lot of change in, in the back office for a lot of broker-dealers. Uh, they're going to begin reporting to CAT, at least for equities, next year. And you've got options coming uh, right on the tail of that. It's an opportunity to rethink how a lot of that reporting is done. Um, and it's an opportunity to retool a lot of the systems that go along with that. I think that's going to be something to, to look for, uh, changes in that area. And then I think really um, the intersection of data and analytics and the ability to actually procure data in, in much easier fashions and then put on top of that 
uh, different analytics packages and to do so easily is something that I think customers have been looking uh, for for quite some time. And I think uh, you're going to see in the future the ability to do that much more easily. All right. Very good. Well, Scott, thanks so much. It was good stuff. And, uh, you know, yeah, hopefully we'll have you on uh, sometime in the future. We'd love to come back. It's good to see you again. Cheers. Thank you.